Hello and welcome to Winning Retail. Today's episode features an interview with Vinita Bali. Vinita is the former head of Britannia Industries, one of the largest food CPG companies in India, and a former executive at Coca-Cola and Cadbury. On this episode, Vinita talks about her career journey, the growth strategies she learned along the way, how working with retailers differs in developing and developed markets, and much more. Enjoy. This podcast is presented by Dell Technologies and Intel. Together, we help you realize digital transformation across retail by driving IT innovation to better engage with today's connected consumer. Learn more at delltechnologies.com slash retail and intel.com slash retail. Welcome to a new episode of Winning Retail, the podcast that's been designed for retail executives to help turn the biggest retail disruptions into the biggest strategic opportunities. My name is Tony Saldana, and each episode we bring you proven, practical, and provocative tips from the brightest minds in the world on retail and technology. And along this vein, I am absolutely thrilled to host an industry icon today. Vinita Bali is a name that many of you I'm sure recognize because she was a superstar manager who returned home in 2005 to be with her ailing parents after a successful career overseas, notably with Cadbury and Coca-Cola in Atlanta. She took charge of the troubled company, Britannia Industry, which um, many of you would know is a leading bakery and dairy maker of popular biscuits like Marie and Tiger and turned it around, and under her 9.5 years watch, delivered the highest ever kegger of 18%. Vinita has made Britannia's biscuits more healthy. She has taken up the cause of childhood malnutrition by forming the Britannia Nutrition Foundation, and in 2008, Bill Gates called Britannia as one of the three examples of creative capitalism. Very, very exciting. As you can tell, I am pumped. Vinita, by the way, is also one of 27 people appointed by the UN for scaling nutrition and went on to chair the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, a Swiss foundation which is based in Geneva. So long introduction there, but I could go on, Vinita. Thank you so much for being on our show and welcome. Thank you, Tony. Looking forward to our conversation. (laughs) All right. Excellent. Hey, Vinita, there's so much we could talk about. You know, we could talk about your more recent work on nutrition. We could talk about your work in Britannia. We could talk about, obviously, retail and technology. And and we'll try and get to some of those. But, you know, I just wish we could make 10 episodes out of just you. But I'm going to keep this relatively simple to start with. Firstly, I always like to start with this question of all of my guests. Please tell us how you got to where you are, which is being, you know, such an icon in the industry. Where did you start off with and what did you do uniquely that got you to where you are? Well, that's an interesting question, and I'm afraid I don't have a very colorful response to that. I think I personally believe I got to where I got to because I've always said that I think I had this incredible sense of adventure and exploration, which took me to countries and continents beyond India. And I'm really grateful for that experience, having worked in India, of course, but I also had the opportunity with Cadbury's to work in Nigeria, to work in South Africa. In fact, I was the first professional manager from India to work in South Africa. 
This was in 93 and 94, when, you know, new South Africa was just being born. So from a historical perspective, I couldn't have been in, a, in South Africa at a better time. Well, I then landed up in Atlanta with the Coca-Cola company, and I couldn't have landed there at a better time because this was the end of 1994, and Coke was getting ready to host, together with other organizations in Atlanta, the Olympics. And if you recall, the Coke and Olympic Association goes back to 1928. And my first job at the Coca-Cola company was the marketing, was the global marketing director for Brand Coke. So I could not have asked for better timing, should I say. So I say this because really, I think in some ways was fortunate enough to get plenty of opportunities. Before I went to Cadbury in Nigeria, I'd had the opportunity of working with Cadbury in the UK, which is of course the largest market for Cadbury's, I'm talking Cadbury chocolates. And then with Coke, I went and worked in Latin America and for several years lived in Santiago in Chile when I was responsible for the Coke business there. So how did all of this happen? Did I have a plan? In my wildest dreams, I could not have conjured up a plan which took me from India to UK to Nigeria to South Africa to Atlanta, to Latin America, back to Atlanta, and then in India. But I can say that I think what works for me is that I, I look at an opportunity, and if that's something that interests me, if that's something that excites me, I say yes, and if it doesn't, I say no. And by and large, that has worked. And for me, landing up in a new place where there is lots to learn, is challenge and adventure in and of itself. So I think it is that combination. And I guess, you know, lastly, I would say, Tony, a lot of this depends on what I call attitude and temperament. If you are a curious, experimental sort of person, then, you know, all of this works. And certainly in my case, I can say I was fortunate to get these opportunities and I tried to make the best out of the opportunities I got. Well, I think that's another of your typical understatements, given your incredible humility. Of course, I mean, turning these opportunities, opportunity always knocks. It's your ability to kind of take them and, and turn them into something incredible that's uh, fascinating. I, I love reading into your bio. Could you tell us a little more about the growth strategies you used there? What did you do? You know, what I did in Britannia in many ways was no different from what I did and frankly what I learned at the Coca-Cola company as well as at Cadbury's. And both of these were incredible experiences for me. And you would have noticed that there is a common thread in everything that I marketed and sold, which is that it was brown and sweet from chocolate to Coke to biscuits or cookies. You know, so a couple of things I learned, I would actually attribute a lot of my sort of learning and experimentation with the long years that I spent both at Cadbury as well as Coke. So I was in Coke for uh, a little over 10 years and Cadbury's for a little over 12 years. And one of the characteristics of both these products, and this is interesting from a retail point of view, is that sometimes these were planned purchases or grocery, your monthly grocery purchase. 
like for example buying a one liter bottle of coke or two liter bottle of coke no large size chocolate but most of it was really impulse purchase and when you start looking from a retailing point of view at impulse there are a few things that come to mind it's got to be merchandised well it's got to be prominently displayed mm. you know we used to call it in the coca cola company points of intersection and i went in there and i said these are actually points of interaction mm-hmm. not intersection interaction with the consumer so we found for example through experimentation that if you actually merchandised coke near the point in a supermarket where you are selling pizzas and so on well guess what yes. sales of coke go up because what you're really communicating to consumers who are shopping is that coke and pizza go very well together so there was a lot of work that i had been exposed to some of this work i had led some of this we had really created from the point of view of where do you merchandise how do you merchandise what is the communication at that point of sale and certainly if you looked at the coca cola company yes. during the time that i was the global marketing director for brand coke we brought back the iconic the very iconic glass contour bottle of coke oh that was you okay <laughs> yeah yeah that was me and the whole strategy really was to make coke you know coke became really distributed hugely around the world through sort of the foresight of mr woodruff who said that we have to make coca cola available within arms reach of desire and that meant putting a merchandising unit where you could a merchandising unit that meant installing human being with cans of coke which you see all over the place in africa and latin america in india when i grew up because a lot of people said selling coke is like having currency because you know that if you got bottles of coke in the morning you would have notes and change in your pocket by the evening that was the attractiveness or appeal of that brand So there was a lot that I had been exposed to several initiatives that we had done and led and to that extent I must give a lot of credit to the opportunities we got for really deepening and widening what is called consumer and customer marketing with Coke. It wasn't just about placing merchandising units, it was how we merchandised the various products inside of those merchandising units. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was working with uh, Coca-Cola in uh, Latin America, we said, okay, what are the things that people buy every day? And you had these kiosks that sold newspapers and they sold sugar confectionery and chocolate confectionery. And we said, well, what if each of these kiosks were to be given a merchandising unit which enables them to sell cold coke mm-hmm. and suddenly out of nowhere we created an additional opportunity to make coca-cola more available in more places more often at more times so this was about the pervasiveness of coke the reason i'm telling you this story is really to say that when i came to britannia in india One of the questions that we asked ourselves was that what do I have to do yeah to convert biscuits which is if I'm a teenager what do I have to do to convert biscuits from a grocery item that my mother buys for the home to 
immediate consumption item when I am out and about. And that led to the creation of what we called pocket packs. These were three biscuits that were packed really like chocolate, you know, put into jars and other merchandising units, displayed at the cash tills. And then there was a whole communication that went with it, which really talked about the fact that you can enjoy your favorite biscuit on the go. And suddenly we found that places like interstate bus terminals in Delhi, railway platforms, airports, etc. became wonderful selling points for immediate consumption packs of biscuits. And by the way, immediate consumption is a word that I borrowed from the Coca-Cola company because we used to say a 200 milliliter or a 600 ml of Coke is immediate consumption and obviously the large one liter, two liters, etc. for future consumption packs of Coke, which also gives you a sense of how you think about the consumption opportunities and therefore where the product should be available. Another big learning really was for me and these are my words, at least that's the way I internalized it and used it. And I continue to use it everywhere, including boards that I'm on currently. You know, the big insight I had was it is not about segmenting the market. It is about segmenting the opportunity. So what is the difference? Segmenting the market says, okay, I have this market. There are all these consumers. I can segment it by demographics, psychographics, and lots of other things that we've traditionally been using in marketing. Segmenting the opportunity is, in a way, what we did with uh, making Coke available at the kiosks in Chile and subsequently in many other places. And what we did with converting biscuit from a grocery item to something that I, as a young adult or a teenager, want to consume on the go. So the opportunity really is in terms of consumption occasions. Okay. So the question you ask is, what are the consumption occasions that my brand lends itself to? And how do I need to present my brand in those consumption occasions? So when you drive into a gas station (laughs) in the US or anywhere else, you know, you will get the one liter bottles of Coke, but you will get a lot more of the immediate consumption packs of Coke. You know, similarly with chocolate and so on. So, you know, Tony, the biggest thing that I think holds marketers back is not asking enough of the different kinds of questions. And we like to think that we are thinking outside the box. But to begin with, we put ourselves in such a small box that, you know, even if we jump outside of it, we don't necessarily jump to very many brilliant new ideas. But I think that's the challenge of marketing and sales. Yeah, no, I absolutely love it. You know, the other thing that struck me, Vinita, as you were talking about all of your strategies is that many of these today have got newer names and terms in the digital world, right? So, I mean, your point about not points of intersection, but interaction, that's what e-marketing and social is all about these days, or your point about really segmenting the opportunity. I mean, again, that's what a lot of the personalization and new business models is all about. So, you know, you may have been a little ahead of your time for the retail industry, but, you know, you were certainly effective there. Now, which is actually something that I'd love to understand, the role of digital and technology, even in those early days. So even as you took 
the brick and mortar challenge of reach and distribution and, and new business models, what role did digital play in those days at Britannia and Coke? Digital, actually in Coke, as you know, played many different roles. The most basic of which was to actually create a presence for Coke. So you can't think of Times Square without thinking of the big digital Coke bottle that is lying Times Square. So there are these iconic, iconic places with the presence of Coke. You think about Piccadilly Circus or you think about Japan, etc. So there are some places which are so well connected with presence and, you know, certainly a brand like Coke was ahead of its times in terms of the bigness of its presence and the relevance of its presence where Coke was placed. And, you know, we took very many of the same concepts, whether it was Britannia or whether it was Cadbury. But I think digital also has another role to play. You know, one is presence and advertising and communication. But I think if I were to look at uh, digitization as a process that enables you to connect better with consumers. Yeah. We did a lot of that through some of the merchandising and the merchandising units that were uh, created because several of these products, again, are very impulse purchase products. Mm -hmm. So you had vending machines selling Coke, where when you opened the thing, it would make a sound of uncorking a bottle of Coke, the pouring of Coke. So we actually used very many aspects of the sensory experience to create for consumers the whole pleasure of enjoying these products. I think there was another very, very useful thing. And of course, at that time, we didn't call it big data and we didn't call it analytics and so on. But that's what we did. And I can say that I was a global marketing person on Brand Coke in, as I said, towards the end of 94, mm -hmm. till the beginning of 1997 when I moved to Latin America marketing. Yeah. But at that time, sitting in Atlanta, we had such sophisticated research analytical systems that I could tell you by market how many daily drinkers Coke had, how many weekly drinkers Coke had, how many monthly drinkers Coke had. Oh, that's incredible for those times. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. How often a daily drinker, how many bottles of Coke a daily drinker had. And more important, Tony, you would appreciate this more than anything else. What was the volume accounted for by daily drinkers? So, you know, I knew, for example, that in market A, it's 30% of daily drinkers that account for 70% of volume. And therefore, what did this lead us to? I remember when I was division president of the Andean division for the Coca-Cola company, we used to actually plan daily sales, we meaning the salespeople. But I, you know, sat in uh, on that at the end of the day. And we actually used to do an analysis of variance at the end of the day for one very simple reason that if daily drinkers are accounting for 70% of your volume and you don't sell the number of cases you were supposed to sell today, then it's very hard to make up for that negative variance because I can't go to you as a consumer tomorrow and say, hey, Tony, you didn't have your Coke yesterday. Will you, have, do you mind having two today? And that's essentially what it amounted to. So I think what e-commerce has done is data has certainly become more granular. 
So I could tell you it's 70% volume coming from 30% of drinkers. But I couldn't tell you that those drinkers are Tony and Ben and Sandra. I think what e-commerce is able to do is to make it really granular, really say that, okay, Tony loves to buy this, this, and that. Yeah, in my case, anything brown and sugar is good, yes. Exactly. And, you know, usually he buys on Fridays and Sundays or whatever. So I think what e-commerce is doing, to your point, is it's taking many of the same principles, but because we have technology that can actually record every transaction and personalize every transaction, I think that is what is making a difference. We had that anonymized data the really good marketing companies had that data, but it was anonymous. Today, I can personalize it. I think that's an incredible insight because I reflect back to my own PNG days as well. Uh-huh. And you're right. I mean, all these companies always had more data. They were slightly different formats. They were anonymized, as you say, and, and they varied depending on whether you talk the US market or Western Europe or the developing markets, but it was there. I think now the ability has become to get much more granular and personalize it, which actually uh, takes me to my next set of questions. One of the things I love about your background is that you hit both developing and developed markets. And so I wanted to ask you, as you kind of think about the distribution as well as technology and data that varies in developed versus developing worlds, how did your approach to retail, how did your strategies change in a developed versus worlds? Again, a very interesting question, Tony. And when I think about it in a dynamic manner, because developed and developing are not static concepts in time. That's true. And they coexist as well in retail. You got got the big store and the small mom and pop. Yeah, exactly. And what happened was that the availability of technology and the availability of technology at affordable prices changed a lot of things for what we might term traditional retail selling, which are the mom and pop stores. So take a market like the US or take any of the so-called more developed countries, the UK, London, etc. So you've got a mix really of mom and pop stores in some places. You've got what the English love to call the CTMs, the confectionery, tobacco and news agent. And you'll find those outside every tube station. You'll find that outside every subway stop in the US, certainly in New York. Yes. And then you've got your supermarkets and then you've got your mega markets like Walmart, etc., where you're looking at annual contracts and you're making pitches and speeches and, you know, what is it was, should it be everyday low pricing or should it be something else? So retail markets have always been stratified. There hasn't been one homogeneous retail market, whether you're talking about the developed countries, the emerging economies or a mix of the two. So I think successful companies and marketeers have always looked at multiple ways of reaching consumers. And those multiple ways have also dictated differences in how you go to market. So my supermarket delivery might be happening once every three days or once every two days. But my delivery at a mom and pop store or at a confectionery tobacco and news agent in some places happens every day because it is the velocity 
that determines what my delivery schedule is going to be. Right. What was very interesting in the emerging markets, and I think that's true, and yeah. that's why technology is so fascinating, is that it enables the emerging or the developing markets to actually take a step jump. So what do I mean by that? A very concrete example. So in markets like India, in Africa, in Latin America, where a lot of business still happens, in Africa, it's still the open market. In India, it's the millions of mom and pop stores. So also in Latin America. You know, the moment handheld terminals or computers became a reality, well, all our sales guys had to do was to go into a shop, look at what the inventory was, take the order, punch it into the remote computer. It would go to a distributor or somewhere, get aggregated. Uh, the vans get filled to that order because it is delivery against a particular order. So what did technology enable us to do? Technology enabled us to, in real time, take an order, communicate that order, get the deliveries going. Yes. Technology also enabled us to say that if this is Tony Saldana's you know, confectionery store, how often am I going there? How much is he buying? Is it going up or going down? And actually, that secondary sale that I make to Tony's shop, is a very good surrogate for consumer offtake. Because don't forget, a lot of the FMCG companies used to rely on their own sales system. And then we all ran to Nielsen or one of the other companies and said, okay, now give me my competitive data. So what technology has enabled is a lot of leapfrogging, a lot of very astute analysis, a lot of very focused analysis, therefore, a lot of very focused programming and communication. Yes, that's fascinating. And, you know, that kind of mimics some of my own experiences as well, because at Procter & Gamble in the 90s, working in places like Nigeria, we were able to get real-time sales and offtake information from these mom and pop shops, which, you know, to your point about visibility of the supply chain, for most large companies, you lose visibility when you sell the product to a distributor. It still has three other layers of distribution that you lose visibility. But what cell phones did was give you the opportunity to actually, even if it's, you know, send me a text message from each of these mom and pop stores, right. get visibility of the entire supply chain. So in many ways, these developing country technical business models became and continue to be much more fascinating, I think. And, you know, it's, it's something that we who live in the developed world, we actually may be at a disadvantage because, you know, you can only negotiate so much data out of your Costco or Walmart or many of the other big retailers. Yep. But in the developing world, you could get much more visibility, you know, that's within your control. Was that your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. Just think of what a smartphone did. So if I was a sales rep, I could actually take photographs. I could take photographs of my competitors, my own, how the product was merchandised. I could WhatsApp that photograph to you real time. I could actually get my budget for the month broken down by weeks, broken down by days in the week. And I knew as a sales rep that, you know, this was the 20th call I was making. And I could in a day make only 30 calls. And where I was, I was only at 50% of my target for the day. And therefore, it also helps the salesperson 
to plan the sale visit. And, you know, we somehow feel that we need to be really well prepared when we go in and negotiate with Kroger or a Tesco or an Aldi or a Carrefour, depending on where you are in the world. But I can tell you, it seems uh, Tony worked in Nigeria as well. My biggest lesson came from the big mamas who were the distributors, a lot of women who were distributors in Nigeria. By the time you finished communicating this new scheme, which you as a young group brand manager had thought of and you thought it was a brilliant scheme, she had already worked through, so what would be her cash outlay? What would she get? What would she not get? And she was like this computer who was ready to negotiate with you. Therefore, the other thing to learn is, yes, e-commerce, big data, artificial intelligence, all of those things can crunch numbers. But at the end of the day, a sale is really, you know, if you can think of a sale as a transaction between two people. And at the end of every sale, there is a consumer who's not a bot, who is a person. And it is therefore, that's why I like to call it is really not just a transaction but it is an engagement. And I think the challenge that companies are facing now really is in a world where we are being bombarded with messages across all things, whether it is stories, journalism, products, services, etc., etc. How do you really differentiate and how do you really build that level of engagement with your consumer that enables you to differentiate your brand from everything else. And I think with attention spans getting fractured and fragmented, with the array of choices increasing, with the many, many different ways in which companies can reach consumers, I think the real challenge is how do I be simple? How do I be relevant? How can I be differentiated? in a world which is getting increasingly fragmented, both in terms of attention spans and delirious choices available to the consumer. It would be very interesting to hear of examples of companies or brands mm -hmm. that you think are able to do that better than others. So what are some of the more exciting examples that you've seen in this space? There are brands that have consistently done a very good job of being relevant and close to the consumer. And I would like to say, if we're looking at the FMCG space, both you and I have worked with mm -hmm. those iconic companies and several of those brands. You take a brand like Coca-Cola. I think Coke's ability to get to the heart of the matter mm -hmm. Coke's ability to get the insight that people really care about and convert it into a message that is relevant, whether these are happy events or not such happy events, mm -hmm. and to leave consumers with a feeling of hope and optimism, even in a very divided world, should we say, is incredible. Procter & Gamble does a lot of the same through brands which are iconic. Yes. I think another company that does that quite well is Nestle. And therefore, you have to stop and think. Unilever, on some of his brands, has done an incredible job of connecting not just the brand performance with its consumers, but also introducing this whole idea of what responsible business is all about. 
introducing this idea that, you know, we can make wonderful products, but we don't have to buy palm oil <laughs> from places where they're cutting down trees indiscriminately and making those orangutans completely homeless. Yes. So I think there are enough examples of responsible businesses yes. and responsible brands that time after time rise to the challenge, that time after time reinforce the reason for their iconography and for their differentiation. And they do it by being relevant to the consumers. They do it by a series of what I would call superior insights, something that touches consumers emotionally, not just rationally. These are not brands that are saying or screaming, buy me because I'm cheap. These are brands that are saying, buy me because I care about you. I care about the environment. I care about the responsibility of business. And by the way, I give you an experience which is just wonderful, exciting, different experience. That's so true. You're right in pointing out that, you know, organizations that are very, very good at consumer understanding and focus. And of course, in the strategy of converting that into you know, relevant market products have always been good and continue to be good you know, 100, 200 years into the business. And, and, and obviously, it's, it's there for a reason. But then you, know, you also start to touch upon the area of corporate uh, social responsibility, which again, you know, I think part of this is, of course, the new generation of consumers. That's also a very important strategy for our times. And by the way, it's also, as a technologist, I find it fascinating to see how technology is playing in this space. Because for example, the use of things like blockchain, or you know, it doesn't have to be specific technologies, but the use of technologies to be able to track for a given product, the entire supply, which may be outside of your companies with you know, some other suppliers, another corner of the world, and to reassure consumers that, hey, you know, this has been sustainably sourced or you know, done responsibly. I, I, I think it's fascinating how that basic focus on understanding your consumers and understanding what they care about and bringing in an element of social responsibility using technology or otherwise all comes together in these worlds. And so it's great to hear you talk about that because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what do you think retail can do today to be even more purpose-driven, right? So not, not just to it's not a fad. It's something that you know consumers care about. So what else should retail do at this point in time? I will come to this question, but I'll take a bit of a detour before I come to the question you've asked. Because I think the first thing that you said about social responsibility of business, I think is very, very important. As consumers, as business people, if we are clear about what we value, what we are going to allow business to do and what is a no-no for business, and all of us are consumers of some product or the other, I think that becomes very critical. And this may be simplistic. I think it's actually simple rather than being simplistic. And that is if we recognize that business is part of the ecosystem of the world in which we live. There are many other things that are part of this ecosystem, but you know, business certainly is a very large part of that ecosystem because it drives our consumption, it drives so many of our behaviors. The economic circle of life, yes. Yeah, and therefore, if business is not going to do 
business in a manner which is responsible, which is considerate to the environment, which takes into account the fact that there is a natural balance that needs to be maintained, which recognizes that egregious behavior is not going to create the kind of equilibrium that our planet needs and so on and so forth. And therefore, indiscriminately cutting down trees to create layers and layers of packaging that just because it looks very beautiful is really not the answer. I think the answer yeah. lies in yeah. the fact that if you can take a social cause and embed it into your business model, then you don't have to think of social responsibility as something that lies outside my business, but it is social responsibility that is part of my business. It is part of my business model. And it ranges from the most simple of things, you know, take very simple things like if I'm hiring people on contract, you know, am I paying minimum wages or am I not paying minimum wages? Am I taking care of the individual as an individual or this is just a headcount mm -hmm. and a number that I can add and subtract at will? What is my responsibility to society? You know, ESG is something that certainly the US companies are talking about a lot, environmental, social and governance considerations. And the thing is, how can we as consumers, customers, civil society hold business accountable for the right kinds of behaviors. And I think retail has a very, very significant role to play because if I look at the physical brick and mortar retail, you know, that is where I as a consumer am interacting with the brand. Therefore, you know, this whole move away from plastic packaging to brown paper bags. And, you know, why should it be brown paper bags? Why can't it be cloth bags or jute bags that are actually recyclable? And when you look at the whole concept of jute, etc., it is taking material which otherwise is considered to be a waste, but actually deploying it in a very creative manner. In India, we make paper out of, you know, husk. We make paper out of banana leaves. It's not just we, I mean, there are many parts of Asia where virtually everything is recycled or certainly used to be recycled and nothing really or very little was actually wasted. We're also becoming a little bit more sort of hedonistic in our packaging and so on and so forth. But why should a tube of toothpaste Firstly, the toothpaste is packed in a tube, the tube is put into a carton, and then that carton is put into another big carton because that is the way it is shipped. And then the big carton is stripped off and then the little carton is put on the shelf. And then I, as a consumer, go, I buy that packet of toothpaste. The first thing I do is I discard that carton. And if you just think of, you know, those they, there were days where we said, okay, it's about the shelf throw and, you know, how good it looks and so on and so forth. So I really think that retailers can play a very, very important role in getting the message back to manufacturers and in getting the message forward to consumers, which says, okay, how can we reduce wastage, especially in packaging material? You know, there is so much of packaging material, you know, glass bottles that are used and jars and plastic and so on. If we can start getting consumers to even return 50% of the packages in which we sell products to them, and we can figure out a way of recycling that packaging material, it'll be great. 
again, I go back to the example of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola for many, many years around the world used to be sold in glass returnable bottles. It wasn't a PET, it wasn't a one-use thing, and then you went to PET, and then you said, okay, what can you do with PET? Then people figured out that you could actually convert PET, and you could make wonderful furniture, and carpets, and so on and so forth. So I think retail and retailers play a very, very important role in actually being the voice between the manufacturer as well as the customer. E-commerce also has a very large role to play because when I order things on one of the e-commerce channels, the way everything is packaged and delivered to me tells me a lot about the environmental consciousness of that e-channel retailer. And that is why I think the pressure has to be constant on manufacturers as well as retailers to say, differentiate between what is giving me real value and what is all this fluff which I'm paying for, which is of no value either to me or to anybody else. And it just goes and pollutes an ocean, a river or some part of our environment. Yeah, no, that is so true. That, that is absolutely true. And clearly we can see some strides being made, both in the, the physical uh, retail space as well as the e-commerce space. I start to see innovation from Amazon here in the U.S. on packaging material to be more sustainable yeah. and so on and so forth. But there's so much more to be done, uh-huh. which really leads me to my last question. And Benita, before I go there, I have to say, I have to get you back here because there's at least about three other angles of conversation that I haven't even touched upon, (laughs) including, of course, your work on global nutrition and so on and so forth. But in any case, recognizing the shortage of time, the final question. So in your mind, where do you think retail is going? I mean, uh, we're in the midst of a retail apocalypse, you know, with digital and stuff like that. So with your incredible experience, how do you see technology and retail evolving, let's say in the next five to 10 years? Well, (laughs) I'm glad you said five to 10 years, because at least one is capable of seeing, you know, I I can't tell you what's going to happen in 50 years. (laughs) But Tony, I see a continuation of physical stores as well as e-commerce channels. What I mean by that is that personally, I feel, let's not forget that we as people like social interactions. We as people like social spaces. Going to a mall is not just about shopping. It is about the experience of hanging out with your friends, Mm -hmm. sitting down, enjoying a cup of coffee, you know, shooting the breeze, getting into discussions and debates and arguments, meeting people in those places. So I see a continuation of physical spaces plus e-commerce. But I think the physical spaces will look different because I think everybody is into this whole thing of, you know, experience. So let's take a very concrete example. We all used to very easily walk into a Nike store, try our shoes, try our whatever athletic equipment or attire we wanted and walk out. Till someone came up with the whole concept of Nike Town and suddenly going and shopping for sports or casual wear in sports, etc., just looked very different. You walked into the store, you could hear sounds of, you know, basketball, you could see the great athletes sort of doing what they do best, and, you know, you could begin to experiment. 
So I think what technology is doing is it is simply increasing the possibility of experimentation. <laughs> you know, I can go in there and I can hypothetically try on uh, something and see what it looks like. Will it suit me? Will it not suit me? And there's all kinds of things that technology enables you to do. I also think there's another very interesting behavior, which is that mm. if I want to actually go and browse and try things, I want to go into a physical store and, you know, maybe then I just come back and I order online. Will online ordering, whatever it is, whether it is food or footwear or clothes or cosmetics or personal care products or household products, you know, will, will we just not see any shops anywhere? I certainly don't believe that is likely to be the scenario in five to 10 years from now. I think we will see a combination of physical stores plus e-commerce. Look at it this way. I mean, anybody can buy, uh, you know, books online, but have all the bookstores suddenly disappeared? They haven't. Yeah. <laughs> there is also another reality, and that is that which we cannot access suddenly becomes more important than it was when it was so easily accessible. That's true. Think of COVID. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at a time when people thought the in-home coffee market was actually declining and nobody would drink coffee. At that time, somebody created, well, not somebody, Howard Schultz created Starbucks. And we all lined up to pay $3 for a cup of coffee. And I think what happens is existing experiences lead the way to new kinds of experiences. There is a lot of experimentation. You know, there is food and then there is fusion food and then there is food that is served differently. And, you know, as long as people are around, which I hope is for a long time to come, together with living in harmony with the rest of the planet yes. and not, you know, appropriating most of the resources for their selfish selves. You know, as long as there are people and as long as there is a social interaction, there have to be spaces which create these shared experiences. Yeah. There have to be spaces which create happy memories. These could be, you know, cricket stadia, football stadia, basketball stadia, baseball or whatever it is. But but I think the nature of that experience, the nature of how things get delivered, all of those things will change. And I think with increasing demands from, from the external environment, whether these are pension funds investing in large companies, yeah. whether these are other advisors, etc., advising large companies, I think if we can find a model yeah. that incorporates in the business that you do, economic and social considerations and factors, then we don't have to think of business separate from society. Then what is good for a country or the world is good for business. Unlike a situation that we have now, which is maybe good for business, but it may not be good for the environment. I think we have to flip it on its head and say, what is good for the environment is good for business. What is good for people is good for business. What is good for orangutans is good for business. And that is when we begin to create a very different paradigm. You know, one which is more conscientious and one that is more responsible and one that generates profit out of that 
consciousness and responsibility. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, Vinita. Technology, you know, brings in experimentation and experience. But, you know, your words, I absolutely love it because what you're pointing out is that at the end of the day, it's our role as retailers, as technologists, to essentially be much more human and inclusive in the way we use all of our resources, create experiences to do the right thing for the people, to do the right thing for the planet. Mm -hmm. And then everything else in business just follows if you do it well. So, hey, thank you again so much. I I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation, Danita. Thank you for joining us. Me too, Tony. It's been wonderful talking to you. And again, we are sitting miles away and we're using technology to do this. But can you imagine if this was an in-person interview and we were doing it on a couple of cappuccinos, it would have been a very different experience. That is so true. And, and you know, you're, you're giving me ideas of maybe offshoot of this, and, and I'll, I'll come knocking <laughs> at your door. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. I really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. And, and also, thanks once again to all of our listeners out there. Make sure you subscribe at www.winningretailpodcast.com. And until next time, keep reinventing retail. Thank you again for listening to Winning Retail. To find more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter, go to winningretailpodcast.com.